would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Our text today is one scene in a long saga. It's one that we've been walking through one section at a time. We began two weeks ago by looking at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. And uh, we saw that story of a lame man being healed at the temple uh, at the hand of Peter and John in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that event set off a series of events that we have been looking at, all of these spanning chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. And what we looked at at the beginning of chapter 3 was that the, we said that the helplessness of the layman, his physical brokenness, his helplessness to do anything about his condition, the helplessness of the layman was ordained by God. To be a platform on which the name of Jesus, the power of the name of Jesus, would be put on display. And that's what we saw played out in last week's passage. The Jews of the temple were amazed when they saw the layman walking and leaping and praising God. And that gave Peter an opportunity to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the power of the name Jesus. Of Jesus, He proclaimed that the man had been healed in Jesus' name. The name of Jesus, the one that Pilate chose to crucify. Because the Jews who were there in the crowd had handed him over to him. But who God raised from the dead. Peter proclaimed that day Jesus as the Christ who was promised by the prophets. And he called the crowd, this crowd of people who had rejected the Messiah. He called this crowd of rejectors to repent, to place their faith in Jesus, the Redeemer, and receive refreshing and ultimately restoration through his name. That's where we left off last week, at the end of Peter's address. The man was healed, gave him an opportunity to speak. Peter proclaims the name of Jesus, and at the end of his address, that's where we left off. So let's see the immediate response to the message that Peter proclaimed, starting in chapter 4. Would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to read verses 1 through 12 of Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, 
by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we look at this text, I think the main point is really clear and really apparent as we look at these verses. The main point is found there in verse 12, and it's this, that salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. Salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. Salvation isn't found in those who proclaim the name of Jesus. Salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. Salvation is not found in any other name. Salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. It's Jesus or nothing. And I see two implications of this truth, that salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. I see two implications of this truth in our text today. First of all, the name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. The name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. And second, the name of Jesus must not be ignored. The name of Jesus must not be ignored. So let's see this first implication in verses 1 through 4. The name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. So right on the heels of Peter's address in chapter 3, verse 1 interjects abruptly. And as they were speaking to the people, so they're talking mid-sentence, as they're speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come upon them. Okay, so they proclaim the gospel, but hey, no invitation, no altar call, no follow-up. The temple leaders interrupt Peter and John as they were speaking to the people. Okay, so what was the problem that these leaders felt like they needed to interrupt? Well, verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's really two problems. For, first, for these temple leaders, the mere fact that Peter and John weren't teaching the people at all was a problem. 
they, the, the Sadducees, they were supposed to be doing the authoritative teaching in the temple, not these guys. If you all started filing out of the worship center, out into the parking lot to go listen to some other preacher, I would be greatly annoyed too. And I'd even be more annoyed if that stranger in the parking lot was preaching different doctrine than what I was preaching in here. And, and that's the situation for the temple leaders. It wasn't just that Peter and John were teaching, although that was a problem. It was what they were teaching that was a problem. Not only were they preaching about Jesus, who the Jewish leaders had condemned for blasphemy, but Peter and, Jean, uh, excuse me, Peter and John were preaching the resurrection from the dead, which the Sadducees, who were in power at that time, did not believe in. So it was a big problem that they were preaching at all, and that they were preaching, in the name of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Three strikes, and they were trying to get them out. Verse 3, they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they come in, and man, they're going to nip this in the bud. Interrupt them while they're still speaking, throw them in prison, and we're gonna, we'll deal with this tomorrow, but we're going to arrest them and just get this knocked out. And maybe they thought they had done damage control. Maybe they thought if they silenced Peter and John, well, then they could diffuse the situation. Maybe they thought if they interrupted, they could keep the people from being led astray from this toxic Jesus doctrine. Not so. Verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Even in spite of this opposition that arose against the gospel message, even then, there came the greatest harvest of souls trusting in Jesus to date. Over 5,000 people. Because the name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. It doesn't matter if the preacher is interrupted before the invitation. It doesn't matter if the preacher is arrested. It doesn't matter who interrupts the sermon, no matter how much power they may have. If the gospel goes out, people can be saved. Because salvation isn't found in a preacher, and salvation can't be stopped by an enemy. Salvation is found in the powerful name of Jesus alone, and his name cannot be thwarted. It should be a great encouragement to us. For those of us who want to share the gospel with others, we should be greatly encouraged that the name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. The name of Jesus cannot be thwarted by a human opponent. Maybe you're sharing the gospel with someone. And they're getting fed lies by someone else in their life who's influential. Maybe even more influential than you. Maybe you have someone that you get to share the gospel with them once a year. But then the other 364 days of the year, 24-7, they are being taught something being influenced by something that is not the gospel. Well, the good news of the truth that salvation is found in the name of Jesus alone, 
The good news is the fact that the name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. It is that no influence is so powerful. No influence is so often. No influence can thwart the power of the name of Jesus. He will save whom he will save, no matter who opposes his name. Not even demonic influence or the devil himself can resist the power of the name of Jesus. In Colossians 2.15, Paul tells us that when Jesus died and rose again, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. No enemy, no influence, no power can thwart the name of Jesus. And this should also encourage us because it means that you and I, as ministers of the gospel, we ourselves can't thwart the gospel. We can't thwart the name of Jesus. Do you ever fear sharing the gospel because you, you think, well, what if I say something wrong? What if I don't know the answer to their question? What if I drive them further away from Jesus? Well, listen, first of all, these fears are shared by every person who's ever tried to share the gospel with someone else. But be encouraged. Not even you are powerful enough to thwart the power of the name of Jesus. He will save whom he will save. He is not going to let you stop him. But he does invite you to participate with him. So let's shake off fear and proclaim the powerful name of Jesus that cannot be thwarted. The name of Jesus cannot be thwarted. There's a second implication I see in this text from this truth that salvation is found only in the name of Jesus, and it's this. The name of Jesus must not be ignored. The name of Jesus must not be ignored. So they arrest Peter and John for the night, and the next day they assemble the entire Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, 71 men in all. And remember, this is the same group that just a few months ago brought Jesus before them and condemned him to death. They were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And this powerful group of men brings Peter and John and the formerly lame man before them. Right in the middle of them, and they ask in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, likely, they already knew the answer. I mean, after all, the reason why they interrupted them in the first place is because they were preaching in Jesus, resurrection from the dead. So they probably already knew the answer, but they were going to get it on the record. So put yourself in Peter's shoes, sitting in the hot seat, being questioned by the most powerful men in your culture. The ones responsible for seeing that your Messiah, your Lord, was crucified. And they're asking you a question that you know they know the answer to, and you know is going to get you in trouble. What do you say? Well, thankfully, Jesus had already prepared his disciples for this moment. 
In Luke 11, 11 and 12, Jesus said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What we see next from Peter is the fulfillment of these very words from Jesus. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed? He says, gentlemen, if you really want to interrogate us about an act of kindness done to a handicapped person, then by all means, we would love to tell you who healed this man. We'll tell you all about it. And and notice that word translated healed, that word healed. It's actually the same word used in verse 12 that's there translated saved, healed, saved. And that's important to see because Luke, as he's writing this, is setting up kind of a play on words. And it teaches us something about salvation. Sin has corrupted our hearts and our bodies and the whole universe. We live in a a cursed, a fallen creation. And so when Jesus conquered sin, he destroyed the root problem plaguing the universe. And the healing of this layman was just one little glimpse of how Jesus was saving the whole world from the curse of sin. He saved this man from his sickness, his, uh, his, his uh, being crippled. He saved him from that. And that's just a small little glimpse of the fact that he is saving humanity from sin And he will bring salvation to the whole creation by making all things new. And so we sing at Christmas time, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So verse 10. With boldness that can only be explained by the Holy Spirit, Peter proclaims, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter, in that moment, wasn't anxious, but he also wasn't self-confident. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, who gave him the boldness to proclaim, the name that healed this man is the name of of Jesus. Peter identifies Jesus as the one whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. It's the third time now that Peter has indicted the Jews by showing this contrast between the fact that they rejected Jesus, but God the Father exalted Jesus. Peter adds even more weight to the rejection that these Jewish leaders, uh, the the rejection of Jesus, as he refers to Psalm 118 and verse 
22, which we read earlier in our worship service. Notice in verse 11, as Peter cites this verse from Psalm 118, he's not only claiming that this verse has been fulfilled, he's actually aiming the verse directly at the Jewish leaders. Notice that in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The weight of the indictment of this verse is really significant. This picture of, of builders and a cornerstone, it, it's certainly a picture of rejection, of foolish builders who rejected the very thing that they needed. But it's not just some random illustration. There is a sp- specific building in view here that we see fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. The specific building in view in this illustration is the temple. Both Peter and Paul tell us in other parts of the New Testament that Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple in which believers in Jesus are like living stones that God assembles together in this construction. And the foundation of this new temple is the prophets and apostles like Peter and John. So for these apostles to quote this verse to the leaders of the temple is incredibly powerful. They were at the temple, the place where salvation had occurred, the place where atonement was made for sins, the place where God dwelt, indicating that these were God's people. And the high priest and the scribes and the elders and the temple authorities here, they were the ones who were supposed to have the authority to teach the word of God and to teach the people of God, which again is why they were so greatly annoyed that someone else would do teaching here on their turf. But God was doing a new thing. The building in Jerusalem that they were nearby, it was beautiful, but it was no longer the temple. The church was the temple. The authoritative communication of God's word no longer came from those temple leaders, but from the apostles of Jesus Christ, whose writings we now have in the New Testament. God no longer dwelt in a temple made by human hands. Now he dwells in the church of Jesus Christ. And the cornerstone of this new temple that these builders rejected is Jesus Christ himself. By rejecting Jesus, the Jewish leaders rejected the very one, the only one through whom they could be saved, the only one through whom they could have access to God through a new and living way. And Peter goes on to say just that in the climactic conclusion of his address in verse 12. To these builders who rejected the cornerstone, he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you reject the, cor- the cornerstone, God's appointed Savior, you reject the only way to be saved. The only way to be saved from the great problem that afflicts all of creation that afflicts every human heart, sin. 
We live in a world cursed by sin and bodies broken by sin with hearts corrupted by sin. And before a holy God, we deserve as sinners who have chosen to rebel against God, we deserve punishment. The punishment of eternal death under God's judgment. And that is a situation that we desperately need salvation from. And Peter says, there is salvation, and it's in Jesus and no one else. You will not find salvation in Moses or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or the Pope. You will not find salvation in self-help or mental wellness or contemplative meditation. You will not find salvation in Joe Biden or Donald Trump. You will not find salvation in yourself. You will not find salvation in your efforts. You will not find salvation in your performance. You will not find salvation in your religion. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus. Why? Well, Peter says it's because there's no other name that's been given for salvation. If we are ever to be saved from the wrath of a holy God, then th that salvation will only ever come if it is given by that holy God. And the holy God, in his infinite mercy, has given among men a way of salvation. One way of salvation. It's Jesus Christ, the name above all names. If we are to be saved, we must call on the name of Jesus. There is no other name. The name of Jesus must not be ignored because salvation is found only in the name of Jesus. That is a bold claim. It's a really offensive claim. And it's a really unpopular claim. In some parts of the world, the offensive part of that claim is that word only, that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Because people want to believe their own religious leader is a way of salvation. People are offended that Christians would be so intolerant to suggest that there's only one way to God. And, and you know, as we think about this message in, in our context, uh, you know, we, we certainly have some people in our community, the, the kinds of people that we would want to communicate the gospel to that are not saved, that we want to see saved. I, I'm sure there are people in our community uh, that, that are offended in that way, that, are, that have a problem with that, that idea of Jesus being the only way to God. But I, I would suggest to you that in, here in our culture, in Stephenville, Texas, most people probably don't have the biggest problem with the claim that Jesus is the only way to God. That's probably not the biggest thing that is a hang-up. Uh, in fact, I'm reminded of a story 
that um, Tim Booker, who's a professor of evangelism at Southern Seminary, to, uh, he told the story once. Um, he was in Texas, and he was talking to a woman, and he asked her, are you a Christian? And she said to him, well, duh. I was born in Texas. I ain't no Muslim. So that illustrates, I think, the point that I, there, there are a lot of people who, under, who don't have a problem with the exclusiveness of Christianity as opposed to other ways. Uh, no, that, that's not the most offensive thing. It's actually kind of accepted culturally in a lot of ways. The biggest hurdle to accepting the truth of, of Acts 4.12, I think, I believe the most pra- problematic word in Acts 4.12 for people in our culture is the word salvation. Because I, I believe too many people do not really understand salvation or they don't want salvation. They may think they want salvation, but it's because they don't really understand salvation. So what they really want is just their own version of what salvation means. Or in other cases, people don't understand what salvation really entails. uh, Or excuse me, in other cases, people do understand what salvation entails, and they they reject that. And and here's what I mean by that. In, In our Bible Belt culture, oftentimes, our understanding of salvation is too small. It may be that we see salvation as as just a small part of life. Or it may be that we see salvation as only part of the gospel. Sadly, there's many who preach this idea that you can accept Jesus as Savior without accepting him as Lord. But that idea is nowhere found in the Bible. The Bible envisions salvation as a whole life transformation. In fact, it views it as a whole world transformation in the end. Uh, But just think about the terms used in Scripture to describe salvation. They don't describe a small change in part of a person's life. They describe a whole life transformation. Death to life. Domain of darkness to kingdom of God's beloved son. Wide path to narrow path. Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. He says you have to lose your life in order to save it. The call of the gospel is to repent, to turn away from this direction and turn to Jesus. Salvation in the Bible is a whole life transformation. When Jesus saves us, we are saved out of a life of being a slave to sin. Out of a life of following the course of this world. And we are saved to a life of following Jesus in freedom and hope and joy. But sadly, many Christians talk about salvation as if it were just a label that can be tacked on to an unchanged life. I've heard people say things like, well, she's saved, but she just doesn't walk with Jesus. Or, well, he's far from God, but he prayed a prayer when he was little, and he really meant it. 
But when we talk about salvation in that way, we reduce it to an empty ritual instead of the life transformation that it is. Imagine that one day you and another person walk down an aisle together. You both repeat some words together, and then someone pronounces you man and wife. But then after that, you leave in separate cars, you move into separate homes, you don't talk to the other person. In fact, you hook up with other people, you have children with other people, you never see that person ever again in your life. And then I see you and I ask you, are you married? And you say, yes. Well, that's crazy. We know that's crazy. But sadly, that's how we view salvation sometimes. Walk down an aisle, repeated some words, someone pronounced me saved, and then I went on with my unchanged life. But to be truly married, we know the absurdity of that is that to be truly married is to radically change your entire life. It's a relationship that fundamentally changes how you exist in the world. But even more than that change, true salvation, the salvation that Jesus brings, is a whole life transformation, a radical change that's based on a new relationship with Jesus, and it fundamentally changes how we exist in the world. You know what happens when someone thinks of salvation in that small way? You can mentally agree salvation is only in Jesus. Perhaps like this woman that Dr. Booker talked to. Yeah, salvation's only in Jesus. But if your idea of salvation is that small, what happens is you can agree with that, but then you go look for real salvation, whole life, soul-redeeming, purpose-giving life change in someone or something else. All the while telling yourself, oh yeah, I'm saved, but trusting in something else for the true salvation that you need. You run to something else to make your life fulfilling. Run to something else to soothe your guilt. Maybe you run to pleasure, work, relationships. Maybe you try to find salvation by being a good member of the community, being a good parent, being a hardworking churchgoer. But you need to realize that the whole life transformation that you were looking for is found in no other name under heaven but in Jesus Christ. And you must not ignore him. And the good news of the gospel is that true salvation is found in Jesus. Salvation is available as a free gift. You don't have to change your life in order to earn salvation. Salvation is a free gift in which Jesus changes your life. Jesus brings you from death to life. Jesus is, as verse 4 tells us, the one who 5,000 people placed their faith in and received salvation. Verse 9 tells us, Jesus is the one who will reverse the curse and heal all of creation, making the lame man leap and the blind to see. Uh, verses 3 and 10 See that Jesus is the one in whom God, the one God raised from the dead and who can bring our souls from death to life. Verse 11 tells us Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple, the one who can forgive your sins by his blood. 
who can bring you himself into the presence of God forever. And in verse 12, it tells us Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus can radically, totally, fundamentally change your life from being a slave to sin, following the course of this world, to having forgiveness in Christ, for knowing the God of the universe, for following Jesus. Don't ignore this Jesus. Don't ignore the salvation in his name. Trust in him and him alone and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have given a way of salvation. You have given the only way of salvation through the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there is someone in here today who doesn't understand, who didn't understand what salvation was, who maybe had a small view of salvation, a partial tack-on view of salvation, Lord, I pray that they would realize that what that's led to is that they're trusting in a false savior, trusting in themselves, they're trusting in their performance, they're trusting in a relationship or a reputation. Lord, I, I pray that you would expose where we are placing our trust in a false Savior. And Lord, I pray that our eyes would be wide open to our sin, wide open to our hopelessness, wide open to the fact that we deserve nothing but your judgment and no one can save us but Jesus. But Lord, I pray that eyes and hearts would be open to see the radical salvation that Jesus brings, the change from death to life, the change from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, I pray that right now, even as I am praying to you, that you, through the Holy Spirit, are stirring in hearts to be changed, to be saved, to bow the knee to Jesus. Lord, I pray that hearts would long for the salvation that's only found through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, that Jesus, is, as he has been lifted up, as the name of Jesus has been lifted up today, Lord, that Jesus is drawing people to himself. Lord, I pray that just as those 5,000 did after hearing the gospel from Peter and John, I, I pray that there would be even one who, who has heard the gospel today who would believe just like they did who'd place their trust in Jesus, in Jesus and all that he is with all that they are. And Lord, that you would give them the transformation, the salvation that's only found in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.